Uh, our next Bible reading tonight is coming from uh, the book of Genesis, and we'll be reading from chapter 2, verses 4 through to 25, and that's right at the beginning of your Bible. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grown out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold is that land... The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The, t- the name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth name is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Well, uh, on the way in, you would have received an outline of the sermon. If that's helpful, you can uh, use that and follow along. Now, this is quite a familiar passage to all of us, I'm sure. We would have read this many times. And, and in a sense, it's hard to preach again on a passage that's so familiar with us. But then again, this is God's living word. So let's come to God again in prayer, uh, asking for his help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, which is living and active. 
We pray, Lord, that as we hear your word, that your word will inform our minds, that your words will stir our hearts, and that your word will change our wills, that our will will conform to your will. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. I'll just... Okay. Well, in life, we have um, many questions, don't we? There are small questions, big questions, important questions, serious questions. We all have many questions in life. And I, I think that's, in a sense, how we've been made. We've been given minds to think, to think hard about about life and all sorts of things. We've been given minds to understand things. And a question I suspect that many Australians are asking at the moment, the question that I think many of us are asking is, what's going on with the Olympics? Why are we doing so poorly this time around? I mean, we usually beat the British, don't we? We we usually always beat them. Last time we were six and two, uh, two Olympics ago, we were fourth on the ranking. But the last time I checked, we're ranked 10th. And the British, they're third. There's no way of catching up this time around. So I suspect a question for many Australians at this time is, what's going on with the Olympics? Some have actually tried to blame the carbon tax, but I'm not sure if that has anything to do with it. Now, I'm sure many of you have many of your own questions, small, big, medium questions. I'm sure many of you have things that you've been thinking about, pondering, wondering, what's the answer to that question? And for some of you, perhaps a question might be, what course should I do in university next year? That's a big question. It's an important question. For some of you, perhaps a que- your question might be, when and where should I buy my first house? to buy our first house? That's a huge question, isn't it? Or for some of you, perhaps, does that guy like me or does that girl like me? Who who should I marry? These are big questions, important questions. And God willingly, uh, hopefully you'll make a wise decision with those uh, questions. But a question I'd like to share with you tonight is a question that's been bugging me for several weeks. Every year around this time, it bugs me, and Yvonne reminds me of this question each week for the last couple of weeks. And that is, this coming Thursday, it's our ninth anniversary. And so she's been reminding me of that. And the question in my mind, and the question that Yvonne's been asking me is, what will I cook? What will I cook for our anniversary? Now, if you know me, I don't cook. <laughs> I just don't. I try, but I'm hopeless. I'm just hopeless at it. But... Our tradition at the moment is that I would at least try to cook each year on our anniversary. And because it's our anniversary, I don't want to do a bad job of it. So I pick the complicated dishes, the exquisite dishes, the special dishes, because I want, I want it to be a special night. And because they're so difficult, they usually end up being a flop. But Yvonne <laughs> pretends to enjoy it anyway. So that's the question on my mind at the moment. This Thursday, what will I cook? I mean, MasterChef's been on, so maybe I'll just do one of that. And I'm sure many of you would have your own questions in life at the moment. But then there are questions that are a lot more important than those, aren't there? Questions that are a lot more foundational, a lot more fundamental to life than those questions, aren't there? And there are questions which I suspect that everyone at some stage in life would have asked. And there are at least two, but we'll speak of two tonight. The first question is, 
Why are we here? Why are we here? Why is there life? Why is there existence? And the second question is, what are we here for? What are we here for? What's our place here on earth? Now, these two questions are foundational questions, questions about our very own existence. And these are the questions we'll try to answer tonight. So we'll be looking tonight at Genesis chapter 2, a passage many of us would know, very familiar with. Now, Genesis chapter 2 is a bit like God's manual on life. God God is the creator. He's sort of put this down. It's like a manual on life. And so if we want to know the answers to these two big questions, Genesis chapter 2 is the place to go. And so let's consider the first question. Why are we here? Why is there life? Why is there existence? Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, we've already seen from Genesis chapter 1 two weeks ago that God is the creator. God is the one who brought all things into existence. God separated the, uh, the light and darkness, the sky and sea. God brought into existence the sun, the moon, the stars, the plants, the animals. And at its climax, the pinnacle of creation, God created man. God created mankind. And so in a sense, that's the answer already, isn't it, to our first question. Why are we here? Why is there life? Why is there existence? Well, God placed us here. That's the answer. God placed us here. And we get a description in our passage about how that happened. So if we look at our passage, if you have your Bibles open, God formed like a potter, got shaped and moulded from the dust of the ground, the first man, Adam. But it wasn't until God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils that he became a living being, that he became alive. And so we see this in verse 7. Have a look. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And so what does this tell us? What do we learn from this? Well, it tells us two things. Firstly, it tells us here that God is the giver of life. It's not through some random chance of mutation from some prime ordeal soup that existence and life came into being. It's not the result of some cosmic battles between the gods that there is human life. You see, we're told here that God is the giver of life. We are alive because God is the giver of life. God is the source of life. God breathed the breath of life into Adam. That's why there is life. And so what this tells us is that where human beings are dependent on God. God is independent of us, but we're dependent on him. He is the source of life. We, in fact, need God. God doesn't need us. We need God. And so every living person throughout all of history, throughout all the world, owes their existence, their life to God. So that's what, is, what, what we see here. Next we see that life itself is a gift. Life is a gift. Now, I wonder how many of us tend to think about life in that way, that life is a gift. It's a wonderful gift. It's something that we don't inherently own. It doesn't belong to us, in a sense. It's a gift from God. And, it, and this is something I try to teach my children when we pray. When we pray, I, I try to teach them that we want to be thanking God for the life he's given us, because that's a gift from God. 
And life is a gift, and it's so it's a gift to be treasured and valued. And that's why, in life, anything that hurts human life, anything that harms human life, is offensive to God. And so killing each other, that's offensive to God. Life is a gift from God. It's offensive to take that gift away. And so things like abortions, that is offensive to God. That makes God angry. Now, it's actually with great sadness that our state, the state of Victoria, has the most lax laws on abortion in Australia. Victoria is actually Australia's capital, abortion capital. Women in Australia can choose to abort their babies for any reason at all up to 24 weeks. Made a mistake, just don't feel like it, you can abort your babies. It's, it should break our hearts, shouldn't it? And it's offensive to God. I know of a situation just very recently, only about two weeks ago, someone uh, aborted a perfectly healthy baby. It's ridiculous and it's offensive to God. Now some stats, in 2010, in the state of Victoria, there were 16,000 abortions. 16,000. That's 43 babies killed each day. We never hear of that, do we? 43 babies killed each day. And many of them will be perfect, perfect, healthy babies. But our, our media, what do they tend to speak of? They speak of the uh, road, road toll, don't they? Now, in 2010, you know how many people died on the road? It was only about 180. And so that is one death every second day. But every day, 43 babies are being killed. And so things like this, this is offensive to God. It's horrifying and it's heartbreaking that humanity will treat life so flippantly, that humanity will discard life so easily, this precious gift from God. But here we have the answer to our first question already, don't we? Why are we here? Why are we here? Well, we're here because God has given us life. God has brought us into existence. And God has placed us here on this earth. And there is a purpose for our life. And so that brings us to our second question, our second B question. What are we here for? What's our purpose here on earth? What, what are we to do with ourselves? What's our place in this world? Well, there, there are th- three points that I want to make. The first, first and foremost, our purpose as God's creatures. Our purpose is to have a relationship with God. I mean, the fact that God is the one who gave us life, God is the one who brought us into existence, first and foremost, our relationship, we are to have a relationship with God. And it's a relationship that is, that is characterised by dependence on God. You see, we, uh, we don't bring ourselves into existence. It's God who's given us life, and so we need to relate to God in that way, where we depend on God as the source of life. And not only that, it's a relationship that's characterised by trust, trusting in God. He's the one who's given us life, and so we are to trust in him. And so in our passage today, when God placed Adam in this wonderful garden, the Garden of Eden, we don't really know where it is, but it could be in Mesopotamia, so up um, Middle East somewhere. Don't exactly know. But this garden, a lavish, fruitful, beautiful garden, God placed Adam in there and God commanded him. Look at verse 16. What did God command? 
God commanded Adam, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And so Adam, as someone who was given life, brought into existence by God, what's his proper response? What should be his proper response? This God who's given him life, placed him in the garden, and given him this command. Well, his only proper and appropriate response would be to trust that, to depend on God, to trust in God's words, to trust that God knows what's best, to trust that what God says is true. I mean, that's the type of relationship that any parent would expect with their kids. So on a human level, so we think on a human level, Yvonne and myself, we gave life to our three kids on a human level. Obviously, it is God who brought them into existence. But on a human level, we gave life to our three kids. We provide for our kids. We provide for them quite abundantly. We give them food. Maccas once in a while. We give them Chinese food. And only Yvonne's cooking. We give them a bed to sleep on. They don't need to sleep on the floor. We give them a bed. And it's a good bed we've got them. We're hoping that it will be a bed that will last until the day they move out. We give them a house to live in. We give them an education. We give them all they have, all the toys, all their clothes, all that they have were given by us as their parents. They all came from us. And so when we say to our kids, you are free to eat from the fridge, from the pantry, they're allowed to do that. And they have the freedom to do that. But then when I say to my kids, you're free to eat, but don't touch the coffee machine. I expect them to listen, to trust in my words. Now, not only because they'll put dirty fingerprints on my shiny machine, it's because it might hurt them. It's a hot machine. It's actually quite hot. So they are to trust in my words. They are to depend on me and Yvonne as their parents. And that's the type of relationship that any human relationship would expect. And so this is what God expects, that the relationship that we are to have as people who are given life by God, is a relationship that is characterised by trust and obedience. And so that answers part of our question. What are we here for? Well, we're here to have a relationship with our maker, with the one who has given us life. Now, secondly, God has placed us in the world, and so there is a purpose in the way we are to relate to the world that God has placed us in. Now, if you recall from Genesis chapter 1, two weeks ago, mankind was created in the image of God. And what that means is that humankind, man and woman, are God's image bearers in this world. We are to be uh, rulers under God in this world, to have dominion over this world. And part of this dominion, part of this rule, means taking care of the world, looking after it, not abusing it, not taking advantage of it but looking after this world so that it might flourish. And so this is what we see God do with Adam. Look at verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. You see that? Now this might come as a surprise to many of you, I'm sure. Adam was a gardener. Being a gardener is actually a good thing. That was news to me. I hate gardening. 
But Adam's reign here was not over just the plants and gardens. It was actually over the animal kingdom as well. Over the animal kingdom. And this is what we see in verses 19 and 20. Have a look. Adam, in this passage, was like the first scientist. He's the one who names the animals, who puts them in categories. He's like the first scientist here. And so in verse 19, God brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. So this passage there reflects how man, man and woman, are to rule this world under God's rule, to take care of the world, to take care of the animals, to be their master. So that is... uh, uh, part of our purpose in life, to take care of the world. And it's sort of similar to the authority that I would give my daughter over her bedroom. Now, Esther has her own bedroom at the moment. She kicked me out of my study, so my study's in my bedroom. She has her own room. And so we've told her, you can be sort of the boss of your room. You're to be the boss over your own things. And so being the boss of her things means not ripping her books, not destroying them. Being the boss of her things means not undressing Barbie, pulling her legs apart. Being the boss of her things means keeping her tidy and neat. And in a sense, that's what God wants of us in this world. That's how we are to relate to this world, to take care of it, to nurture it, to not abuse it. And so secondly, part of our place, our purpose, as human beings in this world we see here is to rule this world under God's rule, to take care of this world, to treat it well, and to not abuse it. This is part of what we are for, what we are here for. Now there is one final point we see in this passage that fills the picture of what we are here for. You see, we are here for each other. Now, there's a special kind of relationship that humans can have with each other that you can't have with animals. Now, this is, in fact, quite quite important. If you recall from Genesis chapter 1, we remember the repeating, repeating words after each day. God declared that it was good, and it was good, and it was good. But on the sixth day, what did God say after all, of, all creation was finished? God said it was very good. God's completed creation, and it was very good. But notice something strange in our passage today. Look at verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. You see, loneliness for Adam was a bad thing. It was not a good thing. Being lonely was not a good thing. Man was not created to be alone. And so here in this story, Adam was lacking companionship, a relationship with someone of his own kind, a helper in helping him with the task of ruling this world, exercising dominion over this world. And so what did God do in this passage? Well, we can imagine Adam in this garden, he's standing there, God bringing the animals to him. God brings him the horse, and Adam's thinking, a horse is good, I can ride on a horse, but a horse can't really be my companion, and a horse can't really rule this world with me. God brings him a cow, 
Adam was thinking, well, a cow can be good for farming, but a cow can't really be my companion. The cow can't rule the world with me. God brings him a dog. The dog can fetch the boy and not much else. God brings him a cat. I have nothing good to say about a cat, but <laughs> swinging a cat around maybe. So God brings these animals to Adam, and Adam's thinking, these can't be my companion. They cannot rule the world with me. And so what happened? Well, none of those animals were a suitable helper uh, for Adam in ruling this world. And so what did God do? Well, look at these very important verses, 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the flesh, the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Finally, God made a suitable helper, a, com- a compliment to the man, this woman. Not made from the dust of the ground, but made from his very own ribs made from his own bones and flesh. See, God, in a sense, in this story, was like the first matchmaker. Now, this was an arranged marriage. Adam had no choice. Arranged marriage is not a bad thing. It happened there. And so when Adam saw the woman, he was excited, he was ecstatic. This is not a cow or a dog or a cat. This is a woman, and he broke out in this first romantic song, the first poem ever, verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Finally, we have here a suitable companion, a helper, a helper who would help Adam in ruling this world over creation made from his own bones and flesh. Now, there's a, a, a Presbyterian minister from several centuries ago, uh, Matthew Henry. He said this about this, and it's an interesting point. He said, Eve was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his, his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. It's a wonderful way of seeing that, isn't it? Taken out from Adam to be his equal. So we see here in the creation of the woman, we see some ordering in creation. There is some order. Eve, the woman, was created out of man, and so they are of the same substance. So together they are equal before God. They are both in the image of God, both rulers over this world both God's image bearers in this world. So they are equal. But yet, notice here that there is a difference between them. They're equal, but they're different. Notice what Adam does, the man. He names the woman. Is that interesting? He names the woman just as he named the animals. Now what that actually tells us is that there's some sort of responsibility that Adam has over the woman. And there is some sort of subordination of the woman to the man. They are equal before God, but there is an order within mankind. Just as the animal kingdom are subordinate to both Adam and Eve. 
So there is an ordering in creation. So why did God create this woman? Well, it's because human beings were made for relationships. We are not meant to be alone. We are to have companions. And the closest of these companions, the closest of these relationships, is the one we see here. It's the marriage relationship. And so here in Genesis chapter 2, we have the institution of marriage. The most basic, the most fundamental of relationships. It's, marriage is in fact the building blocks of any society. And it has been since the beginning of time. And that's God's design. Marriage between one man and one woman. And that's God's only design. And so with this first marriage, we have also the establishment of a new family unit. When someone gets married, they become a new family unit. And this is what we see in verse 24. Have a look. Verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. You see, after marriage, the man and woman, their allegiance is to each other as husband and wife. It's no longer to their parents. They are to, in a sense, forsake their parents for each other. That's the closest bond. And so it says something to blokes who are married, who are still mummy's little boy. You can't be mummy's little boy when you're married. You, you need to be looking after your wife. And so here in Genesis 2, we see a beautiful picture. Man and woman becoming one flesh. Becoming one flesh. It, it's interesting, isn't it? How was the woman created? Well, she was taken out of the flesh of the man. And so in a sense, with marriage, there, there's this reunion. You see, this reunion, the becoming one flesh again. Now, becoming one flesh, it, it, it means that they're becoming like blood relatives. In English, we speak of relatives being of blood relatives. Right? But in Hebrew, they spoke of blood relatives, not using blood relative type imagery, they spoke of being of the same flesh and bones. And so that's what we're seeing here. A man and woman, when they get married, they become the closest of all relationships. And this one flesh language, it also here expresses the intimacy of the relationship. Two Two people becoming one. And so there's this emotional bond, this psychological bond, this physical bond. But there's also this sexual bond. And it's the only appropriate context for this sexual bond to happen. And so we see in verse 25, though they were naked, they felt no shame. So we see here the institution of marriage. Marriage as being between one man and one woman. It's the way it was designed to be, the way it should be, and the way it must be. It's a way in which humankind can eventually fulfill God's mandate in chapter 1. Remember that? To increase in number, to be fruitful, to fill the earth and to subdue it. It's from this, this closest of bonds. So that's our second question, our second big question. What are we here for? What are we here for? Well, firstly, it's to have a relationship with God. To to have a relationship characterised by trust and dependence. Secondly, it's to rule this world, to have dominion over this world. That's important to remember as we'll look at next week, to have dominion over this world, caring for it. 
And thirdly, to relate properly in the marriage relationship. One man, one woman. So that's our passage. Quite a straightforward passage, I assume. We see a harmonious picture of, of creation, the way it's meant to be, the way life is meant to be lived. But now we've answered those two questions, I thought I'd give you another question. And my question to you now is, having thought about what Genesis 2 is about, my question to you now is, what do you think this world would look like if we didn't have Genesis chapter 2? What would this world turn out looking like if we didn't know about the things we learned today? Well, firstly, if we didn't know that we are to have a relationship with God, if we didn't know that that was one of our purpose in life, to know God, to trust God, to depend on God, what would this world look like? Well, for one, we would get a world that believes that there is no God, no God to be accountable for, no God to answer to. We'll get a world that worships not the true God because we don't have Genesis 2. We'll get a world that worships everything and everything and anything. A world that worships the animal kingdom. A world that worships cows and donkeys and monkeys and turtles. A world that worships money. If we didn't have Genesis 2 and we didn't know that that we are to have a relationship with God, then we'll get a world that does not value human life. A world that's, that does not value God's gift of life. And so we'll get a world filled with fighting, with wars, people killing each other. We'll have a world with people trafficking, you know, devaluing human life. We'll have a world that aborts helpless babies. A world that thinks that when a person is disabled, it's okay to kill them. We get a world where we would consider killing off old people to support euthanasia. Now, if we didn't have Genesis chapter 2, we did, if we didn't know that we are to have a relationship with God, then that's the world that we'll end up having. What about the next one? If we didn't have Genesis 2 and we didn't know that we are to be rulers in this world, Caring for this world, caring and not taking advantage of it. What type of world would that look like? Well, a world that would take advantage of our natural resources. A world that would log forests, rainforests, so that there's not so many left. A world where places like the Great Barrier Reef won't look the same in a 100 years' time. A world that pollutes the world. You know, dump radioactive waste so that it causes uh, uh, deformities in animals and humans. And a world that kills off animals for self-gain. A world where uh, uh, rhinos and elephants are hunted, where seals are hunted for their fur, where animals will continue to become extinct. Without Genesis chapter 2, without knowing that we are to care for this world, that's the world we'll end up with. And what about lastly? Without Genesis 2, if we did not know that marriage is meant to be between one man and one woman, that is the proper context for, uh, for intimacy, for sex, what type of world will we end up with? 
We'll end up with a world that promotes sexual immorality, a world that thinks sex outside of marriage is okay, a world that thinks affairs are okay as long as your heart tells you that's okay. We'll get a world that thinks that marriage is unnecessary for children, that marriage is not the foundation for starting a family. We'll get a world that thinks same-sex marriage is okay. That is natural. If we didn't have a have Genesis 2 and what we learned tonight, that's the world we end up with. And so let me ask you that question. What type of world would we get without Genesis 2 if we didn't have it, if it wasn't written down? It's a world we live in today, isn't it? Isn't that strange? The world we live in today, the world we have today, when we look around at the world, the world is not meant to be this way. It's not the picture. It's not the reflection of what Genesis 2 is about. And so what happened? What happened? Well, we've failed. Humanity has failed. And that's what we'll see in Genesis chapter 3, how that happened. But what can we get out of today? Well, the thing is, though the world has rejected Genesis chapter 2, the world has turned away from how life is meant to be lived. Remember this, like God's manual to life. The world has rejected that. But the good thing is that we know Genesis chapter 2. We know what it's on about. We have this manual to life. We know how life is meant to be lived. And so knowing this, Understanding this, we, out of all people, must live accordingly. We must treasure our relationship with God. We must live our life thanking him for the life he's given given us. We must rely on him, depend on him, and we must value and protect human life. That's what life is about. We are to have a relationship with God. Next, we are to be responsible in how we live in this world responsible for what God has given us. And thirdly, we are to uphold, out of all people, uphold the sanctity of marriage, to honour it, to protect it. If we're married, we make sure that our marriage is like that first marriage. When we do get married, make sure our marriage is like that first marriage. So though the world around us is not living the way life is meant to be lived, we, out of all people, we as Christians, must still live this way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us the manual to life, that you've shown us that you are the creator, that you've given us the gift of life, And so we pray, Lord, that having heard what you've taught us in Genesis 2, that we'll all live accordingly, treasuring our relationship with you, ruling this world as we should, and honouring the sanctity of marriage. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.